4: You're jealous of somebody that destroyed my life.
5: This effect is still a problem.
6: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Resound.
4: People go to Vietnam and they have a problem the rest of their lives.
6: But she's not Vietnam.
4: But she's my Vietnam. (laughs) No.
6: ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and other threads of audio we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on and then bring you the best of what we hear each week.
7: One day, I'd take the mail in, i flip through it, and then stopped when I saw a letter that said Federal Correction Center.
6: A relationship between two people is never just that old lovers, new friends, aloof cats, not to mention jealousy and insecurity. These are the uninvited guests that sneak into our intimate partnerships, often armed and ready for combat. Without permission, they settle in like a dense fog, and it is ever so hard to clear the air, which makes a relationship of two feel a little claustrophobic. Today on ReSound, stories of the extra company you never expected. For
8: the sake of the relationship, I've moved myself into a, an alternative bedroom. Stay with us.
1: Uh, for the ones who are still having a little challenge and lingering on the uh, uh, relationship that just passed and... Uh, but the you left or she left, it doesn't matter. It didn't work. But you're still hung up on it.
6: Old lovers are common uninvited guests in a relationship, skulking around in your moments of doubt, lurking in your psychological peripheral vision, and inciting a heavy dose of jealousy. The specter of a former love inspired this next piece by Caitlin Prest. Here is Like Steps of Passing Ghosts.
7: Listen. With faint, dry sound Like steps of of passing ghosts The leaves
9: Frost crisped Break from the trees
2: And fall I have A beautiful boyfriend But the loves that came before him
6: childhood, dreams, stories evolving in your present life, stories you desire to come true in the future
2: still haunt me.
0: Aye,
2: aye, aye, aye. same woman. It's me walking to yoga. Like steps of passing ghosts. Residues still flowing through our bodies and the warmth. we flying. We found Mile End Street. And you, what do you like? Our shared pasts and separate futures. It all changes from moment to moment.
8: Ring in my ears. Wide love.
2: I keep a piece of each of them. A red scarf. A small accordion. A stack of letters. Does my boyfriend know when he sees each of these things that they're tiny pieces of people I love? There's a photograph on my wall of fall leaves and tall trees. It's high contrast. The shadows under the leaves look dark and when you look closely enough, you notice suddenly there's a man staring out at you. He's sitting there with a guitar and a long Beatles haircut. This is a photo from the 70s of my mom's first great love, Sean Bell. We love him. This is my dad.
0: I rank him as one of our best friends, if not our best friend. <laughs> uh, so
2: Sean Bell is basically my dad's favorite friend. They all studied guitar together when they were young.
5: Yeah, you still have a special part in my heart for Sean because it was my first most romantic and passionate, you know, young love.
2: After Sean and my mom broke up and my dad and my mom got married, my dad revived the friendship. They've been friends ever since. I wonder if in fleeting moments... My dad thinks about it. Every morning, I wake up in my beautiful boyfriend's bed and stare at a painting on the wall. It's abstract, red, blue, orange. has a sound wave across the top of it. It isn't a professional painting, it was painted by his ex-girlfriend. A photo of this painting is the desktop image on his computer. Also, the cover photo of his Facebook. I haven't met her, but every day, her presence is felt. This is what I know. Her name is is Emily. They would go to authentic Korean food places somewhere in Manhattan. He still wears some of the clothes she gave him. She urged him to be a classic boyfriend and buy her flowers and stuff. She carried him home and put him in a bathtub when he was drunk one night. They had sex with strawberries once. She was the first great love of his life. I wonder if he'll ever forget her. I wonder if he kisses me the way that she likes to be kissed. I think of meeting Emily, and the animal inside of me bears its teeth. I wonder if she'll try to act like she knows him better than me. Who will be hotter? Does she know him better better than me? me? What kind of hot? She's going to make you feel ugly. The animal inside of me wants to eat her. And I find this very embarrassing My more gracious self is ashamed. You're petty. He loved her a lot. That's nice. It's in the past. I want to be my more gracious self. What is this special animosity we feel for the one that came before? Where does it come from?
4: When I see her, I immediately feel bad about
2: myself. This is Carrie. We talked a bunch about the animal voice that we wish would why go away. Feel so bad? You know, like, why does it, why, why? Carrie is in love with Brian. Telling how you're gay. I'm only a little bit gay. <laughs> because I like girls
4: and their bodies, but I also like dressing up in a pretty outfit. You look
0: so good in a pretty outfit.
2: Before Carrie, Brian was in love with someone named Violet.
5: Describe this person.
4: They have, like, a lot of peppy energy. Um, They're, like, petite. They're really good at turning their attention on people like a flashlight.
2: Violet and Carrie work together. Carrie sees her all the time, in a strangely formal setting. Violet broke Brian's heart so bad that, when Carrie brings her up, she can tell that he's still hurt by it. It bothers her.
5: The fact that it's still a problem—that's
4: that's just the thing, man. People go to Vietnam and they have a problem the rest of their lives.
5: But she's not Vietnam. But
4: she's my Vietnam. <laughs>
5: no. Why does she have to be your Vietnam? Why couldn't she be your like Spanish American War of eighteen twelve? Nobody talks about that one. Will you talk about me like that someday?
4: God, I hope I won't talk about it that way. <laughs> I hope I never have to live through what a horrible thing that was again. You're jealous of somebody that destroyed my life.
5: I don't want to destroy your life, like, but I, was a, I want to be the one who does something really important.
2: I asked Carrie where she thinks this feeling comes from.
5: Um, I don't know. I don't think I'm going to get a title. I think that's the problem. I don't think I'm going to get a title. I want a title.
2: I want a title. Beautiful boyfriend and I are so close that I can feel the contours of the one who came before. The imprint she left in his life has a name. Emily, greatest love, biggest relationship. She has secured a chapter in the storybook of his life. Ours is still being written. How How many many pages pages will I get? I want to have more pages than her. Get a hold of yourself. I want him to forget her. Don't you want to be remembered? It's true. I call them the ones I've left behind, but I want them to remember me. I want to stay in the storybook, and I want our chapter to be beautiful. I received an email from the first love of my life, Kyle. We were supposed to go see a band, a band that we'd once listened to lying on the floor with our eyes closed, pretending like we were watching a movie holding hands. In the email, he was telling me that he'd invited someone to come with us. He says, I haven't felt this level of passion and drama and intoxication since you and I passed through our
9: journey together all those years ago. I really like
2: her. I hope you do too. The animal was pissed. Fuck this bitch. I remind myself that I'm in a happy relationship with a beautiful boyfriend whose ugly painting hangs everywhere. What if she rips my pages out of the book? You're in love. He's in love. It's beautiful. What's your problem? Why do I have to meet her? It's great they're in love. I don't have to meet her. I'm canceling. I'm not going. Get over yourself. You're going to the show. I live on the top floor of a four-story hippie house. Roommates, etc. The doorbell rings, and I know she is at my door. Down three flights of stairs, I fight a losing battle with the animal. It's the two of them sucking face on the dance floor while you stand there swaying invisibly. She's a perfect beacon of femininity, and it makes you feel like your armpit hair is disgusting. The three of you at dinner in fiery silence while they hold hands under the table. And I'm at the door. I open it. I look at her. I get nervous about hugging him in front of her so I hug both of them at the same time. I look at her. She looks so... beautiful. Like, my kind of beautiful. She's wearing goth boots. And her hair's kind of greasy. And her nail polish is chipped. I like her. You were scared to meet me? Oh, yeah. Um, well, Kyle's always talked about you as, like, the most significant relationship he's ever had. Even though uh, it was like four years ago, we spoke so highly of you. So, yeah, why wouldn't I? The three of us are lying on my bed. Intimate, yes. But somehow it felt inevitable.
3: Why why wouldn't she be excited?
2: Mm,
5: I guess.
3: Well, I was telling you
5: this too, but it's not that. Because he kept asking me, well, are you afraid of, like,. I have, like, romantic feelings for Caleb. And I was like, no, I don't, that's not, I don't think that's what I'm afraid of. It's just, like, it's a very formidable position you hold in his life.
2: I was scared to meet you, too. I'm I'm a newbie. Mm. No, but he said, he said to me, can I tell her what you said? Please, yeah. He said that he'd met somebody...
1: Arpeggio.
2: My dad isn't a particularly calm man. Yet, he's unthreatened by the Sean chapter. He likes it even.
0: It wasn't because she didn't love him that they broke up. It was because it wasn't a constructive... Uh, relationship wasn't something that was working
7: what you had with that person at, at the time that you had with that person is can never be erased it's always there
2: this morning I wake up and I look at the painting on the wall. I wonder if some of the things I like best about him come from her. I look at the painting and I take it as proof that he won't forget. I will live on in the hearts of the people I love, just like they live on in mine.
4: Money shot is this
9: one. Empty parking lot. What's on the inside? Mm. What do
6: you want, What's I want adventure, tranquility, farm eventually to people, night, bright humidity. white, blasted with snow. Like steps of passing ghosts by Caitlin Prest. This story is one piece of a five-part Falling Tree production series from BBC Radio 3, each inspired by a different line of Adelaide Crabsey's poem November Night. For a link to all of them, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Sometimes, an uninvited guest can be a pest, pushy, bothersome, or invasive. Other times, he or she can be a pleasant surprise. Our next story features both in the same person, as Katie Mingle and Roman Mars discovered.
9: There's a neighborhood in Seattle called Ballard. It used to be its own city until it was annexed into Seattle in 1907, so it's always had the feel of a small town. A lot of single-family homes and small businesses. That started to change around 2005, when Ballard started to see unprecedented growth. Tons of new condos and apartment buildings were springing up.
5: And around this time, a developer decided to build a shopping mall on a more or less vacant block in Ballard.
9: That's our producer, Katie Mingle.
5: Vacant except for one steadfast tenant who had been there for the last 50 years. Her name, Edith Macefield.
9: The developers offered Mrs. Macefield a million dollars for her
1: tiny house.
5: Which was appraised at about 120000 She said no.
1: The Ballard woman who refused to sell her little house to developers.
6: The little old lady being bullied by developers.
9: The story was classic David and Goliath. Edith Macefield versus the big bad developers.
1: Hi, I'm Barry Martin. I work in construction as a project superintendent.
9: Barry Martin was hired to oversee the shopping center project. And when he heard about Edith Macefield, he wasn't super excited.
1: All she has to do is complain. Tell somebody at the TV station or the, on the newspaper, or, you know, it'll be a really big deal.
5: But even though the press was clamoring to talk to Mrs. Macefield, she wanted nothing to do with talking to them. Here's Mrs. Macefield turning down help from a CBS reporter as she took out some trash in her front yard. Do you want some help
4: either? No.
9: Later in the segment, he knocks on her door and you can hear a muffled, go away.
5: Is there any chance? Go away. Okay. Unfortunately, that muffled recording of a cranky Mrs. Macefield is the only one we could find of her.
9: The construction project
1: got underway.
5: And all the while, Mrs. Macefield went about her business day after day, just like she'd always done.
1: She'd get up in the morning and feed the birds and throw uh, birdseed out on the sidewalk. Most of the time, the birdseed would be there when we got to work.
5: If they didn't see the birdseed, Barry would knock on her door to see if she was okay.
1: And she would usually yell at me to get the hell out of there and go away and leave her alone. A year
9: passed, and the building around Edith Macefield's house got bigger and bigger.
5: And Barry kept dropping off business cards, telling her to call if she needed anything. And then one day, she finally did.
1: Could I give her a ride to go um, get her hair done? You know, we got her in the car and started driving over there, and we were kind of talking about how, you know, Ballard was changing.
5: And sort of surprisingly, Edith Macefield wasn't angry about the way Ballard was changing. She wasn't even angry about the mall they were building more or less on top of her house.
1: She said, because it always changes. That's just the way it goes. She had no reason to move. She didn't have any family. So getting the money so that she could leave it for her family didn't exist.
9: Mrs. Maysfield didn't have any living family to leave any money to. And by the same token, she didn't have any family to help take care of her in her old age.
5: Pretty soon, Barry started taking her to all of her appointments. Then he got concerned that Mrs. Maysfield, who was getting more frail by the day, was going to burn herself on her stove, so...
1: I just started swinging by there after work and making her dinner.
5: Pretty soon, Barry was making her lunch and breakfast as well.
1: One day I woke up and I'm making her three meals a day.
5: Barry took care of Mrs. Macefield for nearly a year and a half. Visiting with her on weekends and after work, sometimes she'd call in the middle of the night and tell him she'd had an accident and she needed him.
1: You know, she had very few wishes. One, she wanted to die in her house, you know, live out her last days in her house, and I was able to help fulfill those wishes.
9: Edith Macefield died in her house on June fifteenth, two 2008. She was 86 years old. She left her house to Barry Martin, the construction superintendent who became her friend while simultaneously sandwiching her house between a Trader Joe's and an L.A. Fitness.
6: That was Holdout, produced by Katie Mingle and Roman Mars for the podcast 99% Invisible. An update about the house. As of March 2016, it was still standing. For a link to a longer version of this story, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. And speaking of websites, I wanted to tell you that ours is brand spanking new, spit polished, shiny, and ready for visitors. And that means you. Third Coast is a Sundance for radio. We support and celebrate the independent radio maker. How do we do that? Well, we have an annual conference, a competition, public listening events, a huge library of wonderful work, and this very radio show. And you can find out all about everything we do on the new site, which looks and works great on your phone and tablet. We roll out the red carpet and invite you to saunter on over. No formal wear required. Come, play, click around a while. We wish you happy browsing. Coming up after the break, a woman starts a secret correspondence with the very prisoner who changed her life, and not in a good way.
7: I would say to her, I hope you rot in jail for the rest of your life. And yet she would write back and say, I'm sorry that you feel that way, but I understand.
6: Stay with us. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. Each week on ReSound, we listen for the best audio stories from around the world and then carefully design a listening experience that will intrigue and inspire. Today, we're sharing stories about the uninvited guests who infiltrate our relationships, with or without our permission. Stealthy things like old lovers, irrational fears, and the annoyances that keep you up at night. In our next story... An unexpected relationship between two women turns out to contain any number of uninvited guests. Everything about their story, how they met, why they bonded, is fragile and surprising. It's called The Hijacker's Letter. Here's Davy Kim and Kathleen Murray Moran.
7: Tomorrow, we planned to go to the beach. I had already made a picnic lunch for us. Everyone was very excited. We had our pails and shovels, and uh, we were ready to take off in the morning.
10: It was a warm evening in September 1976, almost midnight, and Kathleen's two young boys, Chris and Keith, were already fast asleep. But Kathleen was soaking in the bathtub, waiting for her husband Brian to come home after a late night of work.
7: I was lying in the bath when I heard the TV from our bedroom. This is a special report from CBS News. TWA flight 355 to Chicago, carrying 86 passengers and seven crew members, has been hijacked. Two Croatians, Zvanko and Julie Busic, claimed to have a bomb on board the plane and a second device located in New York City. I grabbed a towel and I ran into the bedroom.
10: On the tiny black-and-white TV screen, she saw the camera pan to the most familiar face in the world.
7: It was Brian. In a Kevlar vest. Bomb Squad written on the back.
10: Brian was a six-year veteran of the NYPD's Bomb Squad.
7: On the screen, I watch as he lifts a Macy shopping bag. Then he laid a blanket on the ground, and he and his partner placed the shopping bag on the blanket and then clipped the blanket to a pole. And the two of them lifted the pole to their shoulders and walked out of sight. I tell myself not to panic. You know he has worked hundreds of cases just like this one. There had not been anyone injured on the bomb squad since 1939. But there was something about it, and I couldn't shake it. I walked into the boys' room and I watched them sleep and I listened to them breathe and waited until I could calm myself down. He would come back and see his sons.
10: Kathleen waits for what feels like hours. She drifts asleep. Then something wakes her up.
7: I look around the room and I can see red lights. The clock says 4 a.m. and I can hear car doors slamming. I look out the window, and the street is covered with police cars. This cannot be happening. This is not for me. They're not here for me. But then I hear the doorbell ringing. So I walk down the stairs. When I open it, I see a man from the bomb squad. He looks up at me, and he said three words. We lost him. no no physically I felt so weak I thought I would fall my stomach is in knots the man at the door held my hand and I led him towards the stairs so I could go up to hold my sons I lifted Chris from his crib and a few moments later Keith woke up and sat down next to me what's the matter mommy he said daddy went to heaven how did he get there that God came to get him. A police officer helped me down the stairs with the boys to a room filled with NYPD. The kitchen seemed like foreign territory to me. As I tried to find cereal for the boys, I, I couldn't think where the milk was. Everything just seemed so, so alien. I heard a car door slam outside and I looked out the living room window to see my mother walk up. She grabbed me and held me, and that's when I broke down. No one could tell me why the bomb exploded. The official report was it was undetermined. The funeral was on a bright, sunny day, and I wanted it to rain. I was so angry. As the years went by, I thought I had gotten over Brian. But there was always that pain that I don't think we ever truly get over.
10: It's been over a decade since the terrorist hijacking and bombing. Since then, Kathleen has remarried, her boys are now in their teens, and she also has a daughter with her new husband.
7: One day, I'd take the mail in, i flipped flip through it, and then stopped when I saw a letter that said... Federal Correction Center. In the corner, Busic J was written in a spidery hand. The name made me shiver because I realized that inside that envelope would be the words of my husband's killer. I shoved the letter in the drawer and slammed it shut. I sit down with my family to have dinner. And after bedtime kisses and everyone went to bed, I go down and sit on the couch take the letter from the drawer. The very feel of the paper disgusted me. What could she want? Why was she right to me? I wanted her to rot in hell, and yet I was so compelled when this letter came. She wrote, You are the one who has suffered most. How can saying how sorry I am ever be enough? Even the fact that I have languished in prison for so many years does not seem enough punishment for me. I was surprised It sort of struck me That this woman was sincere So I write back to her My hands are shaking And I wonder if I'm making a mistake I can't imagine what it's been like To wake up in prison every day But I'll bet you thought about What your actions did to me And I'm glad But I like the irony of our correspondence And the chance to write What I can't say to anyone else Before I put the letter in the mailbox, I wondered if I should tell my current husband. He did not like to talk about Brian, so I decided that I would just write that one letter and that he would never have to know and it would make no difference. I checked the mailbox every day. and In the meantime, I compose letters in my mind. And in those letters, I say, I hope you never get out of prison. I hope you never have children. And yet when her letter comes, I can't wait to read it.
10: Julie Busick sent letter after letter apologizing for her crimes. And Kathleen couldn't help but write back. Julie said that while she did believe in her husband's cause, she never thought the bomb would go off. And for that, she was eternally remorseful.
7: She did not think that... It was the right thing to do. She tried to dissuade him, but she failed in her efforts, so she decided to go along with him. Caused me to empathize with her because she had followed her husband blindly. Over time, her letters revealed that she decided to become a nun. If I lost my husband, she would do without hers as well. She divorced her husband and had cut all ties with him. That gave me, you know, I felt stronger about our correspondence. It was a turning point because he never had any of my sympathy. So when she said that she divorced him, I felt that I could be more open with her, that she could be more open with me.
10: Soon, the letters became more casual, more friendly. Kathleen and Julie bonded over the fact that they were both the same age, enjoyed growing rose bushes, and that they were both previously English teachers in Manhattan.
7: We traded books back and forth. There was a book called Depraved Indifference by Robert Tannenbaum that was a story about the incident. And so we both read the book and compared notes. You know, I could tell her anything. I could tell her when, you know, when... when, I don't know, and Chris went on the boat and drank beer. He was fourteen years old. (laughs) And and I would write to her about those things and she would write back and tell me, you know, that that at fourteen, of course, that's what he wants to do, and that doesn't doesn't show who he's going to be when he grows up, you know, that in other words, I was taking things very seriously, but she had some perspective in it. If I did tell her secrets, I shared with Julie that my sister was a heroin addict and wound up in prison and how she ruined her life. And that was something that I never talked about with anyone. After a while, I was writing to someone who understood me. It was like seeing a therapist, and she was so kind and gentle with me. Even when I wrote things that were terrible, I would say to her, I hope you rot in jail for the rest of your life. That was in the beginning. And yet she would write back and say, I'm sorry that you feel that way, but I understand. We wrote letters to each other for over three years. We wrote probably 100 letters, and I never told my husband. I believe after all those years of correspondence that she was a victim. And that she was manipulated by her husband. And she went along with him because he had power over her. So I decided to write to the parole board to set her free. She had been in prison five years past the time that she should have been released. I wrote in the letter that I believed she had served her time. That she was remorseful, repentant.
10: Kathleen didn't hear back from the parole board so she just put it to the back of her mind. But one year later...
7: I opened a letter from Julie. She said she was offered a year and a halfway house, and then that she would be released.
10: Kathleen and Julie wrote back and forth from the halfway house. Julie wrote that she was excited to move to Oregon, back to her parents' home, but that she wanted to visit Kathleen in New York first. So they planned a lunch date.
7: We agreed to meet in a very nice restaurant near Central Park. Before she was released, she wrote to me, I am so thankful for your letters to me and to the parole board. I will never forget your kindness. I will arrive in New York on October 24th, and I am so excited to meet you. I was very, very excited to see her. I did believe that seeing her would finally give me closure. That morning, I woke up with with the jitters. My husband kept asking me, what was the matter? And of course, I could not tell him. Most of my closet was on my bed piled high because I couldn't decide what to wear. And I thought about what she might look like if she was prison-worn or wrinkled-looking from having been behind bars all those years. I thought that even though I was 40 years old, that I still had a good figure and my hair was still red, and that I probably would look better than she did. (laughs) A little competition. <laughs> I got to the restaurant early because I was so nervous. The restaurant was bustling with conversation and laughter and waiters, and I thought, boy, I could use a glass of wine. I was standing by the hostess when I felt a tap on my shoulder and I turned around and I knew it was her. She was Beautiful, much more lovely than I could have thought. She had on a beautiful dress and she had a pearly white smile. And the first thing I thought was, she didn't look like a hijacker. She didn't look like she had been in prison for 13 years. She took me into an embrace and she said, oh my god, you're so beautiful. I thought to myself, no, I'm not. You are, (laughs) you know? We sat down and she was carrying a shopping bag. At first, I pulled back because of the Macy's shopping bag with the bright red star, and it frightened me. But I peeked inside, and I saw that it looked like a gift. So she handed it to me, and she said, this is a Croatian woven purse, and it was given to me by the Croatian community for you. In addition, she had an envelope with money in it, and she handed that to me as well. Then I asked her what her plans were now that she was free. And she sat up straight and she said, I'm going to move to Croatia and wait for Zvanko to be released. And I sat back and looked at her and I said, I thought you were divorced. She said, I made some hasty decisions. We were divorced, but we remarried. And I said, what hasty decision was that? to build a bomb, to hijack a plane. She said, well, I had no choice. You you did have a choice. You could have gone to the police. You could have gone to the embassy. There were other ways to do this. I thought, I can't believe this. She is going to have her husband back and I will never have my husband back. With that, Something in me shifted. I look across the room towards the exit. I stood up and said, I'm leaving. Wait, she said. I paused at the table. She said, there has to be an end to our suffering. You said so yourself. Which brings me to ask you if you'll write a letter to the parole board for Zvanko. That hatred that I felt for her in the very beginning came back. She was not the one manipulated. It was me. She had manipulated me to become her husband's savior. I took a deep breath. I yelled, I'm not going to help your husband, as a matter of fact. I'm going to do everything I can to keep him behind bars for the rest of his life. She stood up and tried to take my hand, and I grabbed it back and shoved the shopping bag and the envelope towards her. I scraped back the chair and I walked across the room, free from Julie Busick, my husband's killer. When I walked out of that room, that is what gave me closure, freeing myself of her. I made a mistake in helping her, but that mistake did help me to move on.
6: The Hijacker's Letter was produced and sound-designed by Davy Kim, for Snap Judgment. Zonko Busick served 32 years in prison, and in 2008 he was paroled for good behavior and reunited with his wife, Julie. Kathleen Murray Moran is the founder of Survivors of the Shield, an organization that supports the spouses of police killed in the line of duty. She wrote a book about her experience, also called The Hijacker's Letter. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. Today, we're listening to stories about unexpected outsiders that sneak into our relationships. These uninvited guests come in all shapes and sizes. They're not always old friends and crazy relatives. No, sometimes it's the idiosyncratic habits of a partner that loom large, like the way they chew their food or leave their coffee grounds in the sink. But when these annoyances are involuntary... It's hard to get mad at someone for a habit that can't be helped. Well, not that hard. Here's The Lonely Animal, a snorer's memoir.
8: During one of the many nights that no, that I kept him awake with my snoring and what have you, he put pen to paper. He's not, he, he works in construction so he's not a poet and, and he's not even big on writing but he wrote this for me anyway. The nasal serenade he called, termed it. Oh those sweet sounding snorts, the great grinding grunts and decibels she shunts. Beautiful noise of sorts is her royal roar. The matriarch is moaning, in bed she is groaning. The pitch is astounding, sends my heart pounding. When quiet is a token, no words are spoken, then silence is broken with an almighty snore. (laughs) You know, it reminded me of, it sounds like a pig at a trough, really. You know, great grinding grunts and, and, you know, moaning and groaning and and this sort of thing and almighty snores you know it sounds very animalistic and it's a part of our physiology that you can't control and yes that whole poem points to some sort of a pig or some sort of a creature what can you do about it though he may be the face i can't
2: forget a trace of pleasure or regret, maybe my treasure or the price I have to pay.
8: She may be the song that sings, maybe the chill that all maybe a
6: hundred
5: different things. <sighs> within the
9: place.
3: The Snoring Curse, a memoir by Milan Djurovic. Today I took the first step. I called a reputable clinic where they have a special unit dealing with sleeping disorders. I asked the medic on duty about the procedure and the steps I had to take to get an appointment, get diagnosed and treated. I felt good about it, although not terribly optimistic. I haven't heard of any success stories and I wondered if I belonged to the category known as incurable. But I still had some hope and thought it was worth trying. No one pushed me into doing this. It was more the despair with the situation my snoring has created for me. My love life, to be more exact. It has come to a point where it seriously threatens the bare survival of my relationship. I've passed all the stages from denial, acceptance, then frustration, and in the end, resignation. It's very sad. While I accepted responsibility, I could never really feel guilty. I felt more like someone who was cursed at birth that someday he'd start making these terrible night noises that would drive away any woman he loved. And there was no good fairy to touch me with her magic wand and remove that curse. My relationship had a very passionate beginning. Snoring was there from the start. Tired eyes looking at me in the morning were telling me of the night's ordeal. But passion seemed to have outweighed the suffering and the tired face was smiling at me. I felt guilty a bit but did not think it was such a big problem. She'll get used to it. She'll learn how to sleep with my little night music. But the problem was there to stay. Stay and grow. Tired eyes with dark circles around them started complaining. Complaints became more frequent and then regular. I couldn't blame her. But what could I do?
8: to begin with i had difficulty actually believing the degree of loudness or the degree of affect i was having on my partner we tried virtually anything we could we were you know at the early stages of a relationship madly in love with each other and and naturally enough wanted to spend you know non work times as much as possible together so that was really difficult and frustrating and upsetting and you know um, and also I felt as though I was somehow letting someone else down you know my partner down that I was being a disappointment and in the long run I ended up um, moving myself upstairs into a, another bedroom because the to- the nature of his work is such that he has to concentrate very very um, deeply on what he's doing and not getting enough sleep being woken up periodically during the night he'd wake up and he was irritable and cranky and and I just thought things just can't keep going on this way that that um and wanted to maintain the relationship and for the sake of the relationship i moved myself into an alternative bedroom my femininity was definitely feeling threatened you know because Women aren't meant to snore and and be disturbing and, you know, even though I consider myself somewhat a feminist and I realise that this is a medical condition and I don't blame myself. I still couldn't help but having those types of feelings, definitely. You know, there was also that feeling of, you know, not feeling good enough or not, you know, when every other aspect of the relationship you know, how it is in the in the first instance when you partner up with someone that every other aspect seems to be just oh-so-perfect, you know. You enjoy spending time together and listening to music and, you know, doing whatever it is that couples do. You know, even the intimate side of it was and has always been excellent. But um, that was one part of our relationship right from the beginning that I felt that I was, you know, really... Letting my partner down.
3: A feeling of joy after spending a wonderful day together would gradually be replaced by a dreadful fear of my demonic transformation in the night. Will I snore again? Just a little hissing sound or the roaring of an angry hippopotamus. I felt uncomfortable getting in the bed. In the meantime, my love was constantly trying the latest models of earplugs, all in vivid colors of yellow, red, orange. She would put them in the pillowcase, in the pyjama pocket, next to the bed, under the bed, between the sheets. It looked as if she was laying out a minefield in anticipation of the arrival of some formidable enemy. Then, first shyly, with the mutual feeling of guilt, we stopped sleeping together at night. Week after week, my snoring was adding mortar to the Berlin wall growing between us. Now, we don't sleep together at all at night. A little cuddle, a kiss, and then everyone heads towards their bedroom. Doors firmly closed. Here and there, she would offer that we sleep together. It reminded me of those ancient legends where a beautiful young girl would be given as a sacrifice to some hideous monster for some greater good. I never accepted. I felt like one of those horses my father told me about. He told me how, in the army unit he served in, they would have to take a horse that snored away from the stable so that other horses could sleep. Otherwise, they would be totally useless the next day. I felt like that horse, shivering in the cold winter night, away from warm stable and company and feeling very lonely. A weekend away. Last weekend presented an interesting challenge. We made an impromptu decision to go away. We were lucky to find a place and happy to be getting out of the city. But then I started to worry. How are we going to spend the night? There was only one room available and it had only one bed. I can't remember the last time we spent the whole night in the same bed. She looked worried but less worried than me. I'll take a sleeping pill and knock myself out, she offered. Yuck. I did not like the idea of her taking some risky stuff. The brochure said that there was a nice shared lounge room with a fireplace. I thought maybe I can stay very late until everyone's asleep, then sneak into the lounge room, switch on the TV and then sleep there on the couch, pretending I fell asleep while watching a movie. That night, I went into the bed with her with the feeling, I assume, one would have before doing a bungee jump. But the room was warm and cozy and I soon relaxed a bit. We were leaving a day full of nice experiences behind us, happy and curled around each other as we were falling asleep. I struggled to stay awake as much as I could to give her a chance to be deeply asleep before the frog concert began. I woke up in some timeless dark hour. I tried to figure out where exactly in bed I was and where my darling was. In the pitch dark, I saw her silhouette right on the opposite edge of the bed as if she was preparing to jump off the cliff in desperation. Please don't jump, I nearly said aloud as I reached out to pull her back, but my hand was pushed away. The feelings of rejection, loneliness and guilt were sitting heavily on my chest, making it hard to breathe. I'm sorry, darling, but I'm not hurting you on purpose, I tried to tell her, but my voice was in hiding, too afraid to come out. This is not fair, I complained to myself. I have no defense. I remember once, after a sleepless night, She angrily cursed me that I should experience a night like the one she had just suffered. Well, maybe it's time that I cursed her. May you snore, curse you? I'd like to see you waking up after a good night's sleep, only to have to confront my exhausted, tortured face, looking at you as if you were a murderer. I wish she could see how it felt to be pushed into the defendant's box. A defendant with no advocate and no defense, going through a show trial with a known outcome. At least she has an option. She can get rid of me, the despised snorer, while I can't get rid of my unwanted curse.
6: That was an excerpt of The Lonely Animal, A Snorer's Memoir, written by Milan Durovich and produced by Natalie Castucher for ABC RN's Pocket Docs. Natalie tells us that Milan is her fiancé. It's always a delightful challenge parsing fact from fiction with Natalie and that he's trying to kick the snoring habit by playing the didgeridoo. We asked Natalie if it was helping. Well, she said... No one's mentioned that I look any perkier. For a link to a longer version of this story, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Riva and David Logan Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live.